And the kids can be uh, dismissed to kids' ministry uh, at this moment. Thank you guys for leading us in song this morning. If you want to grab your Bible and open up to 1 Timothy, we'll be in chapter 6 here this morning. Which really, there's, there's this Sunday and next Sunday, and we'll be finished the book of 1 Timothy. Um, a lot that the Lord has taught us is still teaching us, still teaching me through, and I pray a lot more here this morning as well. I want to think, start with a, a different kind of way to start here this morning. I want you to think through your problems and, and the world's problems. And just, just start thinking through maybe the things that have kept you up, kept you awake, uh, give you worry and anxiety for, for ourselves. It could be, uh, could be some sickness, could be just feeling low time in life. There could be death, mourning, could be sin in our, our lives that we just can't shake. Maybe a trial going through that just doesn't seem to end. And the list could go on and on. Just think, what is that for you? What is that problem, that thing that you're facing that just is weighing heavy upon your heart. And then just think, outside of ourselves, bigger picture, the things that we can worry about, things that we can talk about in terms of inflation, rising costs everywhere, food shortages, gender confusion, sexuality under the name of inclusion, politics, Alberta, Canada, the world, the World Economic Forum, the list could go on and on. Just like read the news. What is it that catches your attention and you start to worry about? What is it that tightens your chest and quickens your heartbeat? So just like you have that in front of you, think about that. And then sometimes when we're going through those things, some people can, like, can kind of walk in and just, hey, just trust God. Hey, God, just, he works out everything for his good. And sometimes we can say it flippantly. Sometimes we can say it so quickly. Maybe it's not, I don't know, do we really mean it? We're just like, hey, don't even talk about it. That's not my intention this morning. Like, those things are real. Put them all in front of you. But when we say trust in God, wait, who is this God that we are to trust to? That we are to trust. Who is this God that works out all things for the good of those who love him? I pray that this message this morning is about who is that God? It's not talking about the problems that we face. They're there. They're real. But who is that God that is our refuge, that is our strength? If you think, think of it a, a couple of ways, I don't know if you've ever, maybe when you were younger, maybe not anymore, Maybe you went tonight, maybe you went camp and you, you were somewhere and you looked out on the shadows and you saw a kind of figure and you were, you were somewhat scared. What is that thing? And then when the light of day kind of broke, you're like, oh, it's just a tree branch kind of oddly shaped. Like the light of day kind of exposes things like actually maybe it's less to be worried about. I, I pray that this message will be like that as we look on God uh, and see more of who he is. Almost just like as each day, as the earth rotates closer to the sun and, and we get 
we, we move towards the sun in a sense, not actually move, but like spin towards it. I hope this message is like that we were, we're getting closer to God. And as we get closer to God, we see more of his light and his holiness and who he is. And it also exposes the things that we're holding to and worrying about and that maybe they're less than we thought because of who he is. I pray that that's what this message will do this morning. We want to be increasing our view of God. That is the title. If you want to stand with me as we read God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 15 to 16, but for context, we'll start in verse 11 here this morning. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you'll bow with me as I go to the Lord again in prayer. Oh Lord, oh God, I pray by your spirit, allow us to hear, allow us to see more clearly who you are, give us greater understanding. Oh Lord, allow us to see the immensity of who you are, the greatness. May we feel that way. May we also see how amazing the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is in fulfilling a number of the things we're going to look at. Oh, Lord, give us all ears to hear, but help us, oh, Lord, just to see how big you are. So I pray you'd help me uh, through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would speak. I pray you'd give me clarity and boldness I do not have, that you would be honored and glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just want, to, I want us to think a little bit about what was, what was Timothy facing. Again, as Paul wrote this letter, he's getting to the conclusion of the letter at the very end. Uh, well, Paul was um, writing to Timothy, and Timothy was in Ephesus. If you've been with us, you, you know the story. Timothy was facing false teachers uh, in the church, some of whom were elders who were leading people astray. He was also facing maybe a group of people who were rejecting his leadership because he was young. Maybe he was not respected. Perhaps Timothy was feeling a little helpless, wanting to give up strength from the ministry God had called him to. So Paul writes this letter, commands him to do these things, commands the church to be about these things. And then kind of as he's finishing, he gives him this charge we looked at last week. Flee from these things. Pursue these things. Fight the good fight. Keep going, Timothy. Keep the command unstained without reproach until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what does Paul kind of seal it with? In light of this charge, in light of the things you're called to do, do it because of who God is. 
That's what I want you to see. He goes to talk about who God is and interesting, he does it after he speaks of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ was he will display at the proper time. Paul just like jumps into praise. A doxology, we call it. And just like immediately goes to like God the Father. All these words and phrases over and over again. I just, I love it. He's like, he's writing, he's writing, he just stops and he goes into praise. Man, I, I, I want to get to that place where like we're talking about something and stop and go into praise the Lord. Unfortunately, my phone has distracted me about so many things. I don't go there. I just go squirrel and run to the next thing. I want to just be so, you know, so enamored with who the Lord is that as we're talking, like, man, well, look at the, look at the clouds moving by. God is making this. He's crafting this. So that's where he goes. He goes into this awesome look at who God is. Friends, this morning, as we, we're going to go through kind of each title that Paul paints to Timothy, I want us to grab hold of each of these statements on God. We're going to kind of grab each one and then build them up with Scripture. Maybe look some to the Old Testament, some to the New Testament. And we all, I want them to solidify in our hearts and in our minds as we, as we go through this list. So the next time we're reading through this, we like stop, like, yes, I know what is being meant here. I know that what that means for me. I know a little bit more of who God is. And as we look at, primarily it's God the Father that Paul is talking about, I'm also wants to see how that either applies to the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, or how he also accomplishes that for us on our behalf. That's my intention. That's why I'm praying. Only God can do this. So going into this list of names, Paul starts with, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. I want us just to see that God is sovereign. I'm going to focus on he's sovereign over time. He's sovereign over everything, as we're going to see as we continue. He is the blessed and only sovereign. What does that mean, that God is blessed? That God is blessed. Paul uses this same phrase in 111 as he went into another time of praise earlier on in the letter. We, we often, we think of, and rightly so, it's those who follow God are blessed. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean that God is blessed? And interesting, like reading different books, commentaries, not really anyone answered that. Of course, John MacArthur has something to say. I quote MacArthur a lot because there's details that other people don't unpack in Scripture. I love what he said. So what does it mean that God is blessed? MacArthur says this, when used in reference to God, it describes his lack of unhappiness, frustration, and anxiety. He is content, satisfied, at peace, fulfilled, and perfectly joyful. While some things please him and other things do not, nothing alters his heavenly contentment. He controls everything to his own joyous ends. God is blessed. And what else does it say? It says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign... He's the only sovereign. And of course, sovereign meaning ruler, the one who in, who's in charge, William Mounts, describes it as this. It describes not a derived power, but one who inherently possesses power. Other people can be given power, can be given authority. He is sovereign ruler because of who he is. That's just his and no one else's. He is the only sovereign. As we think about his sovereignty, I first just want us to think how God is sovereign over time. 
because of the phrase that appears beforehand, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God the Father, will display at the proper time. That word proper time, one commentator notes this. It occurs two other places in the Pauline epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. It shows that the sovereign God is in control and does his work when he deems it best. The phrase could therefore be translated in his time. That's what it means. So I just want to show you the few places where this is mentioned, this proper time. The first is in 1 Timothy 2, 5, verse 6. We've read this before. 1 Timothy 2, 5, verse 6. Paul wrote there, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, whom God, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The proper time God came down as a man and gave himself as a ransom for many. We'll also see this phrase in Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Paul talks about in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 2, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, there's that word again, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Jesus came at the proper time and died on the cross. Also, at the proper time, he called Paul and others to start proclaiming this word. It was God's perfect timing. God is sovereign over time. Think about this. It was the perfect time for the gospel to go out. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. You think the time that Jesus came, why was it the perfect time? Well, just kind of three things to think through. One was because they had a common language. About 300 or so years previous, there was a guy, Alexander the Great, and he went around the kind of known world at that time and just conquered at a very fast rate. He only lived to be like 33 years old, and then he died. But what he did is he conquered. He brought Greek culture everywhere, but particularly the Greek language, where everyone was speaking a different language because of what God had done previously, Tower of Babel. Now everyone kind of had this common language in which to use Greek. So that's one reason God came at the proper time. The other reason is the Roman Empire came after the Greeks, right? They took over. The Roman army was so dominant, they had something that was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, as in the peace because they dominated everyone else. So nobody was fighting. There was this odd time within human history of a common language, Greek, peace in the land. And the third thing they also did is the Romans had a road system for trade routes, that people were able to pass throughout the Roman Empire uh, easier than they ever had before. So you have a common language Greek, you have a peaceful time, and you have a road system. It was God's perfect timing for Jesus Christ to come to die on a cross and for the message to spread. God is sovereign over time. I hope we can see that. And again, we would, we would say too that what is said there at the end of the letter in 1 Timothy 6 the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, the time that Christ will return. God is in complete control of that time. And friends, he is, if he's sovereign over that time, he's sovereign over our days, our beginnings, and our end. David writes in Psalm 139, verse 16, speaking of God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Even the days that we're going to live, 
God is sovereign over those times. I want you to see here if God's timing is so perfect as we look at salvation, as we look at the message spreading, as we think of his second coming, then can we trust his timing in the events of our lives? Even when it's not happening how we want, when we want, like just we see in scripture so clearly that God is sovereign and we're, we're just narrowing down over time. Then do we say, oh yes, and he's sovereign over my time. So we can rest in that. We can trust in that. I want you to see that. Going on, the next um, kind of title that Paul gives Timothy, speaking of God the Father, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to see that God ruler, rules over every ruler. God ruler, rules over every ruler. And this, some people, like, one of the reasons this is in here, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is in Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering the church. It was uh, one of the centers of emperor worship. Right? In the Roman Empire, they would they'd say, Caesar is Lord, and everyone would need to bow down and worship Caesar. And so declaring that God actually is the king of kings and lord of lords is actually saying, hey, but Caesar is not. So part of that, it's actually a kind of political statement in that sense. If you think of it uh, in the scripture and in history, king of kings has been used to describe kings in Babylon, uh, kings in Persia. Again, like I just mentioned, the, the, the rulers, the emperors in Rome thought they were deity, thought they were like, they were the top. But God, no, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. One commentator, Marshall, says this, whatever forces there are in the universe, they are subject to God. He shapes the world's course of events and reigns over all kings and rulers. Just think of the rulers of history with me. We're just going to take a sweeping look through the Old Testament very quickly. Just think, if you'll turn with me to, maybe keep your finger in 1 Timothy, or you can just listen and stay there. Uh, Genesis 11. I'm just mentioning these things quickly. Think of Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And just look at verse 4. All these people gathered together, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to gather together. They wanted to say, look at us. Look at who we are. Make a name for ourselves. We're the top. Let's build a tower reaching to the heavens. They're doing this in disobedience to God. I love it says, even in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city. God had to come down. It's like this picture of God's like, what are those, these little people trying to do down here? Like God already knows all things, but I'm just saying in terms of the reality, like God had to come down, and what does he do? He stops what they're doing. He disperses them. They now speak in different languages and scatter throughout the earth. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10.
And just to let you know, so Deuteronomy is before the, the people, after they'd come out of Egypt, were going into the promised land. It's like a recounting of the law. Deuteronomy, like second law. They're remembering what had happened. They're looking forward to what was going on. For the sake of time, I'll just read a few verses. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now Israel, Moses speaking to the people. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Look, verse 17. This is, all, this is wired to do that. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and does not take a bribe. Look at verse 22. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And where were they at? They were about to enter into the promised land. Where did they come from? They came from Egypt, where Pharaoh was the ruler of the, all the kings of the world. They were the top nation. And when Moses and Aaron go and they say, hey, let my people go, the Lord is, is, is calling us to worship him. He's like, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Then after 10 plagues and Egypt is decimated and crossing the Red Sea and their army is wiped out like Egypt's in ashes. Who's the Lord? He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. You think of, if you'll turn with me to Daniel, just one more look in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, this is when Nebuchadnezzar, so the king of the Babylonians, the top dog of that time, he had a dream. He had a dream and no one could interpret it. And he found Daniel who could interpret it. And these, this dream that he had, it was this statue. And the statues represent the nations. Interesting, Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 2 verse 37 he refers to the king of Babylon. This was a common phrase. You, O king, the king of kings. To Nebuchadnezzar, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. He's like, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you have. And then he tells them this dream. And I love in this dream, there's this statue, right? He's representing the powers of the world. And then this rock comes and smashes it. And then look at verse 44. This is what it says about this rock. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom of God. That's the church that Christ builds. And notice this from in verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar's response. The king answers and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. So he confesses the king of, all, a king of that time. No, actually, God is the God of gods and king of kings. So that's just the, the Old Testament. But just think of right now. If you just turn to Isaiah chapter 40, or I can read it for us, Isaiah 40, 21 to 25. But think of any political ruler. Think of someone you are worried about. Friends, you're not going to hear this on the evening news. 
Anyone you're worried about, and hear what I'm saying, I'm not saying don't vote, don't get involved, like do everything you can. What I am saying in hammering this point down is don't be worried, don't fear, don't be anxious. Do you see who we serve? Because what does it say in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 21? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes, that's rulers, to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest, the wind, carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Remember who our God is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But as we know, as we, as we live in this time, you could say, and rightly so, but things are not as they should be. There's wickedness, there's brokenness in this world, in our lives. As we proclaim that Easter, but there's new life available in Christ. Friends, we know Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. He came, he was whipped, he was beaten, he came humbly, nailed to a Roman cross, buried, rose again to give new life to those who would put their faith and trust in him. But then we know he's coming back again. And he's not coming back as the humble, broken servant. He's coming as the conquering king. So though these phrases we've been looking at are describing God the Father, I just want you to see what it says about Jesus Christ. You just listen, but I'm just turning to Revelation. Revelation 7, 14. It says at the beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 5 of Jesus, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 7, 17, 14 speaking of as Jesus wars against this broken world system that we are currently living in. It says they will make war on the lamb. That's that system. That's the antichrist. That's his beast. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Friends, just turn with me, Revelation nineteen sixteen, very quickly. We're starting in verse 11. I'm just going to read it. Let this hit our hearts, shape our minds. This is the return of Christ described in Revelation. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, jewels. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, his He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In that picture, Take time and read Revelation 19 there today. When Jesus comes back, there's no battle, there's no struggle. He shows up and it's over. That's the one we serve. 
This should give us great peace. This should allow a lot of our worries, our anxieties, to lay them down at the feet of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And still do what you can while you can. Make a difference, but we should not be worried, worrying about it. We should not be fearful about it. If this is our God, but question, if he's the king of kings and lord of lords, we're looking at political rulers, is he the king of your life? Is he, lo- is he the lord of your life? We know in scripture it says that when he returns that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess his name. Are you sitting here today and you have not done that? To say, yes, yes, I, see, I want, he is the ruler over all rulers. He's the ruler over me. Say, yes, Jesus, you are gonna, you're going to have total control of my life, of my ways, of my dreams. I pray that would be true. And if it's not, I pray the Lord would draw you to himself today. Continuing on this list that Paul gives, you won't spend as much time in each one of them. But he goes on, speaking of God, who alone has immortality. God alone is immortal as in one who cannot die. And this language is more like Hellenistic, it's more Greek speaking, that they would speak of their gods, that they are the mortals. And it's like, no, 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 they're not, God is. God is immortal, God alone cannot die. Maybe again, this is in response to the emperor worship, because they would say the the emperor is immortal. No, he, he dies and you bring another one on. God is immortal. You just think in terms of, What's said about him in scripture, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God. Think of the name revealed to Moses before he goes and sees Pharaoh. God says, I am. Not I I once was, not I will be, but he always is, I am. He's the self-existent one. No beginning, no end. This is just a side note, but just think, where do we go for wisdom? We often want to go to people who are maybe aged, who have seen a thing or two. Why not go to the immortal one, the eternal one, who created all things for wisdom? And he will will give that to us. But it says even in in John's gospel, John 5, 26, Jesus says, the Father has life in himself. Same thing said in 1 Timothy 6.13. When Paul gives a charge, he talks about God who gives life to all things. Through him, we are made. We have a beginning. God does not. He is the immortal one. Yet think about this with me. Through Jesus Christ. Yet through Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 15, notes this. Speaking that God, the second member, Jesus, came in human flesh, he says, since therefore the children, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus on the cross, it was the death of death. 
that those who would believe in him would not have to shudder over death, not have to have fear, but actually have life eternal open to them. This amazing truth. I just want to show you this truth kind of pulled out a bit, thinking of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. 51 to 55. God is the immortal one. Jesus on the cross defeated death. And those who believe in him can have eternal life. It says of those who believe in him, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must, be put, must put on immortality. That's the hope that we have, that one day, the resurrection, we will actually have immortal bodies. It seems like everyone. Some, though, their, their eternal state will be with God in heaven. But for others, for those who rejected God, rejected the gospel, it'll be actually with God in hell. God will be the one punishing him, them. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, or 56? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the immortal one. We were not made with immortality, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be born again. We will have resurrected bodies that will be immortal. And now we can hope. God alone, though, is immortal. I want you to see the next phrase that, that Timothy uses, or that Paul uses to Timothy. I know it's, it's a lot. It's, it's, hard. it's like we just keep looking up. That's what this passage is. I want you to see next that God is holy. God is holy. What does he say about God here? God who alone, or who dwells in unapproachable light, God who dwells in unapproachable light. It says in Psalm 104, verses 1 to 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. God is covering himself with light, with unapproachable light. Psalm 5, verse 4 maybe helps us understand why is it unapproachable the psalmist writes this, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. He covers himself in light, dwells in unapproachable light. Sin cannot be present in his presence. This is God's holiness. Robert Yarborough says this, along with unapproachable, it suggests moral purity, along with utter transcendence. Another commentator, William Mount, says this in his this sublime image God has represented, as it were, dwelling in an atmosphere of light, surrounding by glories which no created creature may ever approach, no, no mortal eye may ever contemplate. To think about, it's hard to think about God in unapproachable light. But you think about in the Old Testament again, there's the Holy of Holies. They had the temple, and the priests could go into the holy room where there was bread, 
They'd set out every day and there was a candles lit as in God's presence. And then there was this altar that had incense rising from it. But then there was a curtain. We've talked about this. Or if you've been in the church, and this is how they worship their Lord. They give sacrifices, and they go in and make sure the bread is there, make sure the light's on, make sure the incense is rising. But then there was that curtain, because on the other side of the curtain was the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God dwelt. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, you could read about it in Leviticus 16, the priest would enter into behind the curtain in, in, into the Holy of Holies. But before he went, he would have to take a censer and put a bunch of incense upon it and take fire from the altar. And so clouds and puffs of smoke would be ascending. That's the only way he could enter in because it says, or else he would die going into God's holy place and looking with his eyes among the place where God dwelt among Israel. He dwells in unapproachable light. Think of angels as they appear to people, always white, always glowing. I think they're reflecting the glory of God's light. Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he gets a, a glimpse of this light as part of his testimony. Acts chapter 9, verse 8. You turn, turn there with me if you'd like. Acts chapter 9, verse 8. Paul's story, I, I, I love this. Acts 9, but Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Remember, this is the guy who's writing 1 Timothy later on in life. At this point in his time, he's like, I want to kill Christians. I want to take them to jail. He wanted nothing to do with God. God meets him. God is so kind and merciful to whoever would turn to him. I love that Paul wrote like a quarter of the New Testament. But so at this time, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's like, I just want to go arrest Christians and see them killed. That was his intention. Verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you see that? A suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Jesus speaks to him, verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. And then his eyes are open. He, be he believes. He gets baptized. But I love it. Just a light, just a light shining down from heaven blind. And not the direct light, just just off to the side. Think about God dwells in unapproachable light. Yet through Jesus Christ, we can go into the very presence of God. I, like that's the thing. God dwells in unapproachable light. Yet just see this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. Paul writes this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, 
Speaking of Genesis, speaking of creation, for God who says, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God lives in unapproachable light. We cannot go before him on our own in our sinfulness. We'll be broken. But through faith in Jesus Christ, God in his mercy pours his love into our hearts, gives us the ability to see, to trust in him. Amazing. In his kindness and mercy, he pours this knowledge of the gospel into our hearts, gives us faith in Jesus Christ. And remember what we talked about on Easter Sunday when Jesus was on the cross, he breathed his last. In the temple, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Through Jesus Christ, we can access right into the very throne room of God because of Jesus' perfect righteousness, because his blood covering over our sin. That's the amazing thing that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul continues on in this letter God, whom no one has seen or can be seen. I want you to see God can't currently be seen. God can't currently be seen. So anyone you know who says, yeah, I had had a vision of heaven, saw God. You're like, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's going against what the scripture says. I just want to show you one place in Exodus uh, chapter 30. Exodus 3, verse 3, remember Moses, he sees the burning bush. God speaks to him through the burning bush. In the Old Testament, God speaks to people in various ways. Kind of they have appearances. They see a glimpse of God, but they do not see him face to face. Though it even says in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, it says this, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, And they saw the God of Israel. They were under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And it continues on. It's like, well, no, it says there they saw God. But they saw like an appearance of God. They saw a glimpse of him. Because it says in numerous places that no one can see God and continue to live. And the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But Exodus 33, we're going to have verses 18 and continuing. Moses talking with God. I want you to see this. Moses said to the Lord, please show me your glory. What a brave, brave thing to ask of God. Please show me your glory. And he said, and God said in reply, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's all part of God's name. I just want, did you see that? I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, continuing, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. My face shall not be seen. This amazing thing. Moses even just gets to see the back of God, he gets to go through him, but he cannot see his face and live. 
Friends, we cannot see God because of his holiness and purity and because of our sinfulness and brokenness. We can't take it in. Just just think, if we were to stare at the sun, God's creation, right? You're not, well, you're not supposed to stare at the sun. You do for I don't even know what, how, how long, and you, you could go blind. That's just one of God's creations. But so no man, no woman, no created being could dwell, no human in God's presence could see him face to face. Just think of people who come in contact with God Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah appears before the throne of God. He has this amazing vision of the Lord, these angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And what what does Isaiah do? He's like, I'm going to curse myself. I should die. And the angel has to grab uh, something to atone from his sin. Has to deal with his sin. You're like, okay, maybe that's, that's the Old Testament. What about the the New Testament? Well, there's a story in in Luke's gospel. And and Jesus, there's such a big crowd, so he gets into a boat and kind of goes out and he's giving the teaching. And after the teaching, Luke chapter 5, what I'm referring to, uh, he comes back in and he says to the fishermen, Peter being one, hey, have you guys catch anything? No, we, we fished all night, we didn't catch anything. Like, well, set your boats out. And they get such a big catch of fish They have to call in another boat. And they're putting the fish in it, and both the boats are sinking. And Peter, as he sees this, he kind of just gets a glimpse of, like, who is Jesus? Doesn't see God face to face, but just that glimpse. And he says, when Simon Peter saw it, Luke 5, verse 8, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Friends, like, the more we know of God the more we know about ourselves. Like, that's the reality of the, of the Christian life. The more you know about God, the, the more he grows, the more you're like, oh, man, I'm worse than I thought I was. <laughs> right? Ever, ever increasing. I don't know about you. It's like as time goes on, I keep thinking like, man, I should, I should be further ahead. But the more I see God, who he is, the more I'm like, man, I'm broken. I need Jesus more today than I did last week, than I did a year ago. Because that's the thing, right? Our, our sin, our wrongdoing, our separates us from God. We cannot see God because of it. But yet through Jesus Christ, we can see God. We can behold God the Father. Jesus it says in Scripture, Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, God in the flesh, but yet his, his glory is hidden. But if you, if you behold the Son, if you have your faith in, in the Son, Jesus Christ, you behold the Father through him. And again, yet just think of this, yet because of Jesus. So it says, who God, no one can see or can see, but there's a promise in, in Matthew 5, 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But we can only have pure hearts through the work of Jesus Christ. It's only through him. 
I just want you to see, right, there's that, a beautiful promise in Revelation. Revelation 22, 3 to 4. This is the end of days. This is the new heavens, the new earth. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will come a time where we will see God face to face. I can't even begin to grasp, begin to think through what that'll be like if you just think, like, what are the greatest things currently that your eyes could see? It is nothing in comparison. I don't know about you, I have contacts. My eyesight is diminishing the longer I'm alive. But there's a day, there's a promise for believers that one day we will see God face to face in our new resurrected bodies where the curse will be over, no more suffering, no more sin. That's worth getting excited about. That's worth talking about. That's worth having our minds dwelling on, our hearts encouraged. And Paul ends this, this section of looking at God the Father, going back there to 1 Timothy 16. To him be honor and eternal dominion. God deserves all honor and eternal dominion. How else can you say it? Speaking of honor, that's our worship, esteem. Give, give to God what is due him. As in everything and everyone. Yet he made everything and everyone. Yet everyone and everything should give honor to God. Honor and dominion, it means more like power, might. And this word is never used of a human at all. This is for God. He is the one who has the power. Robert Yarborough says this, honor is what Timothy and all creation owe God. Might is what he possesses that makes any other response to him except honor inexplicable fully, foolishness. If God is who he is, he deserves all honor and eternal dominion. But again, the time that we live in, we see a glimpse of this. Like God is not, not everyone is bowing the knee, not everyone is like, yes, we love the Lord, we're, we're giving him honor, eternal dominion. We do not yet see this. It'll be the day, the finality, as Jesus returns, the new heavens and new earth are created. That is when it comes in its fullness. But we do not see it complete now. Friends, think about this. Honor and eternal dominion. Does it not first start in our lives, in our homes, wherever we would be, that we're like, man, I want to give God honor. And that looks like surrender. You know, it's like, yes, Lord, you're the ruler of the universe in every aspect. Lord, rule me. Lord, rule me. There's a prayer, I don't know where, I, or it's like a, it's a song, I don't know, but it says, Lord, reign supreme and reign alone. Cast down every idle throne. And I'll often pray that. I'll continue to pray that. I think that's, that's the response, that you would have honor and eternal dominion. So for our lives, that we would give him our wants, our desires, but then as we lay down everything, we also lay down our fears, our worries, 
our anxieties. And then we would commit our lives, surrender, I believe, in service, committing all that we have, our time, our talents, our treasures. But in reality, it's his time, his talents that he has given us, his treasures that we are stewards over for a brief period of time. We would give him honor in how we use them. And again, honor referring to praise, that we're going to do in a moment as we give praise with our lips, with a song. I just want to leave you with this challenge. There's so many things I've been thinking through, just, just thinking on God, thinking who God is. Friends, I, my prayer for us, my prayer for me, is that we would talk more about how great God is than how broken our world is. That we talk more about how powerful our God is than the ills of our society. And not that that's changing, not that we still don't do what we can while we can, but man, that we just, we, I just want to talk about God more. I want to focus on God more as we live here, as we do what we can. And it's not that whatever problems we're facing, whatever problems we will face, man, let the, the light of who God is, the immensity of who God is overshadow it. That we'd feel actually more the weight of his glory than the weight of this world. I pray that God would do that in our lives. I love Paul ends this section of praise. Amen. Amen. May it be. May it be so. May it be done in our lives. If you'll bow with me as I close this word in prayer. Oh, Lord, to speak on, on you uh, so much is said, and, and we haven't even scratched the surface, Lord. I pray that which is true, that which lines up with your scripture, a seal in our hearts and our minds, oh, Lord. And I pray if I said anything that would take us in a different direction that was untrue of you, may it fade away, may you expose it. Oh, Lord, I pray you'd work in our hearts and lives that we would turn to you in our anxieties, turn to you in our fear. Give us greater courage, greater trust, whatever would come, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. May you have honor and eternal dominion, not only in the future, but right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.